Well, I was just sitting next to Sean Curry, our student pastor, and we were singing that song. I was like, man, can you believe we get to do that three times today? Like, we have the best job ever. Like, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that amazing? (laughs) Help me out here. Let's go. Hey, we are in this series today called Identity. Let's all say that together identity and just the, pa- the, the idea of unpacking the power of who you are. Like you never live beyond, <coughs> excuse me, how you see yourself. And so we've been unpacking this through the book of Ephesians, just a study in this particular section of the Bible. And let me start with a question today. Uh, when have you felt like you didn't belong? Like we, we've all felt it at certain times, but when have you felt like you didn't belong? You know, maybe you were in a conversation with someone and they knew what they were talking about and they thought you knew what they were talking about, but you had no idea what they were talking about. And then they said, you know what I'm talking about? And what'd you say? Yeah, right, uh-huh. And you had no idea. And you're like, I'm on the outside, they're on the inside. Like there's somewhere I'm not fitting in. Like I do not belong in this conversation. And as we get older, kind of what tends to happen is we'll remember a certain point in our lives when we were kids that somebody called us a name. And it wasn't, it wasn't the name on our birth certificate. It was not a good name. And they called us a name. Now, now, I can remember when this happened when I was in elementary school. And some of the names, you know, you start out with as kids are really trivial and they don't really mean anything. Like, I can remember calling somebody four eyes because they had glasses on. Like, that really hurt them deeply, I'm sure. You know what I mean? What about this one? Metal mouth? Because braces used to be metal and they put them in your mouth. It was like they would cut up a Coke can and put them around your teeth. And you would have this metal in your mouth and it seemed to be an insult. But then the insults got and the words and the names got a little more powerful. And it was, we, you, may, you may call somebody Dumbo because they have big ears or Tubby because they were just a little bit overweight. Or maybe the name was Dumb that you got called because you were maybe a little slower to pick up on reading in your class. And it could have been uh, crater face because you just struggle with acne. You know, there are just these names that come along. And what happens is those names communicate to us that we don't belong. And there's this some, it may be something about our personality. It may be something about our physical body. And all of a sudden, something that we never noticed before becomes the main thing we notice. When we get up in the, mirror, in the morning, we look in the mirror. It's the one thing that we see. It's the one thing that we tend to pay attention to. So what happens? We have some reactions to that. We may isolate a little bit, kind of stay out of the limelight. We may start different eating habits. We may stop eating altogether. We may start exercising a lot. And this thing just tends to chase us throughout our lifetime. And only when, when we begin to understand who we are based on where we belong do we live out the power of our identity. Only when you understand where you truly belong do you live out who you truly are. We underestimate the power of where we belong, the place we belong, and the people we belong to, right? Somebody say amen so I know we're together. Man, we misunderstand the power of belonging. And and today, we see this is exactly where Paul starts in his letter to the Ephesians. In uh, chapter 2, verse 11 is where we pick up for today. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by the hands. All right, so let me unpack what this exactly means for a minute. Now, in the Jewish mind, man, there were two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, people who were in and people who were out. It was black and white, right? It was like, we are 
the people of God and you are not. And, and there was this hostility in their lives that we can't even begin to communicate with each other. And so what, what they've done here, when he says you were uncircumcision, I get it. That's kind of a weird thing to talk about in general. But in the Jewish culture, to be circumcised meant that you were, that was a sign of the covenant that your people had with God. And so to be called uncircumcision was the gravest insult that you could throw on somebody if you were a Jew. And so you had this hostility. So, so, so think about this. For Jews, when a, when a Gentile child was born, a non-Jew child was born, they said that they were born so that they could be fuel for the fires of hell. Like, that's pretty extreme, if, if I'm saying, you know? Man, if you were to stumble across maybe a Gentile mom who needed help, maybe she was giving birth, and you gave her help, you would be uh, charged for violating the law, and you'd be punished. If, if one of your kids married a Gen, uh, if you were Jewish and one of your kids married a Gentile, they, you would have the wedding. Your parents would have a funeral for you. They would literally have a funeral. Why? Because you had stepped so far out of in this relationship with somebody that you hate. And so Paul is painting this very extreme picture of what it looks like to be out. Then he uses these four words down in verse 12. He says, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, so you're separated, you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Maybe the saddest verse in the Bible. So, so when he says that you were separated, what he's saying is you can't get there from here. Like no matter how you try, there is no avenue, there's no road, there's no interstate, there's no pathway for you to get there from here. Then he uses this word uh, alienated. It means you don't have a passport to get in there if you, want, if you could get there. And so then he goes on with this idea of being a stranger, like you have no knowledge of how to get there. And then he says, no hope, as if you were destined for the island of misfit toys. So Paul has just painted this picture as best he can of three words. It can be all be boiled down to three words. You don't belong, right? You don't belong. Now there's hope coming, but this is the picture that Paul paints for people who are without Christ in this church that he's writing for. And Paul wants them to really feel this. Do you feel it? Right? Paul is going to do a master class in identity, and he wants them to really feel that it starts with this reality that you don't belong, man. We've all felt that before, right? We've all felt that before. Like some of you, maybe you felt it today coming to church, and maybe you came for the first time. And you're like, ah, is anybody going to be there? Will I know anybody? Are they going to handle snakes? Like, what's that's funny right there? Come on, somebody. That part's coming later in the service, if you're new. No, I'm just kidding. That's not going to happen, at least not poisonous ones. Um, and so we, we have this intimidation, like when we come to church, we don't know, especially if we haven't been before. Maybe you went to the gym and you're like, ah, I haven't been to the gym in a lot of years and there's going to be new equipment and I don't know if I fit in. There's those people that seem to be in shape and I don't know that I'm in shape. You know, maybe it's a car you drive. Like anybody in high school, you drove a hoopty, right? It was just, it was a piece of junk. Like some of you guys will appreciate this. In high school, my first car was a Caprice Classic. Okay. Now, now some of you guys don't know what that is. This is how I would describe it to my kids. It was like driving a 15 year old wood paneled minivan to high school. That's what it was like with car seats in the back. You know, it, you, and maybe for you, there was something like that. Felt like you didn't belong. Like maybe you didn't make the team. Maybe you didn't get into the club and maybe you didn't get invited to the party. You know, we've all kind of felt what it feels like, man, to not belong on, on, on a certain level. Uh, it reminds me of what that great theologian Eric Church wrote in one of his songs. Any Eric Church fans in the house today? Come on, somebody, right? Hey there, weird kid with your high tops on in the back of the class, right? I was just like you, always left out, 
never fit in, walking that path, always walking that path, you're walking in Mr. Misunderstood. We just feel like we're on the outside, we're, we're misunderstood, man, that we're outcast. Man, and even successful people feel this because people who are outcast, who, who seem to be like, yes, of course you are. You may be a loner or you're isolated or maybe you don't do what the cool kids did. It feels like you look at other people who were successful and like, they must feel like they fit in and they don't. Man, you could be the quarterback of the football team, point guard for the basketball team. You could be the great pitcher for the baseball team. You could be the great drum major for the band. I mean, you could be the orchestra conductor. You could be the prom queen. You could be the valedictorian. And people still feel like they don't belong, like they don't belong. And it follows us in the, in, throughout our adult life. You would think, you would think that when we have some kids and maybe buy a house and are fairly successful at our job, that we could actually do some things that we may feel like we belong. But there's this gnawing underneath the surface of our lives where we wonder, do I, do I, do I fit in? Man, do I really belong? Man, and belonging is important. If you, were to study, if you were to read studies about the number one regret in life as people get to the end of their lives, the number one regret in most studies, and it's not even close, is that people wish they'd had the courage to be themselves. The courage to be themselves. Because what happens when you get to the end of your life, you'll realize, yeah, I actually did belong. We, we live in this comparison competition, and man, we miss out on who God has created us to be. Now, now the, the, the reality is identity and belonging, they're inseparable, right? You can't separate them. We, we think we can because we think other people don't matter. I don't care what other people think of me. But, we, but, but our identity is really tied up to the community that we belong to. It's one of the primary human needs. Like if you think about human needs, you have you know, food, you have shelter, you have water. Nothing co even comes close to this need for belonging. The reality that it actually provides the pathway, the most life satisfaction is when we belong. It's even hardwired in our brains. So follow me on this. When you don't belong, you're isolated and lonely. And that registers in your brain in the same way as physical pain. So you're wired to belong, wired to belong. And then also the craving that we have um, for relationships and for food and all those in the area of the brain that that operates in, it's the same area as this craving to belong. Man, it's hardwired into us. It's why people join gangs. It's why you join clubs. It's why when you, these days at least, when you join a political party, Democrat or Republican, it's less about philosophy and more about identity, which is why the level of conflict has gone so high. You're not criticizing my policies, you're criticizing my identity. That's next level, criticism. And so it's hardwired in us, man. It is inseparable. The group you belong to actually determines how you act. So the people you hang out with and they determine your values. Have you ever been around someone and all of a sudden you notice you're saying the same things they say? Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's terrible. Hey, how many parents do we have in here? Did you ever notice something came out of your mouth and you thought, oh my gosh, that sounds like my dad. Like my parents said that, right? We, we tend to say things. We have values. We go places. We dress like. We work like. We earn like. The community that we hang around with, man, it is it is powerful in our lives. So think about this. Man, if you're a farmer, you act like a farmer. If you're a farmer, you drive a truck. Come on. 
If you're a farmer, you wear Carhartt. If you're a farmer, you listen to country music. No, Christian rock always. No, I'm kidding. Um, you listen to country. Man, we, we know this. This is what farmers do. There's even a, there's even, uh, the farmers even have their own bat version of The Bachelor. It's called Farmer Gets a Wife. You know what I'm saying? Like you just, uh, not that I've watched it for the record, um, but he was pretty cool. Um, but man, we just tend to act like when you feel like you belong, also the benefits are tremendous. And there was a study done at the University of Stanford, freshman class. And some of you that if you've been to college, you know, this is how it goes. The first week or so of class, you're in orientation. They say, look to your right and look to your left. Those people will not be here in next semester. It's what they will tell you. And so Stanford did this study to try to understand what makes students stay, what makes them uh, succeed, what, what makes them have a high GPA, like what goes into that. And what they found is within the first month, if you can find your people, if you can find the place where you belong, it wasn't IQ, it wasn't your high school resume, it wasn't your transcript, it was your feeling of belonging. There are great benefits to belonging. I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying it's very powerful and we have to know that. Brene Brown said this, she said, belonging is this innate human desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And because this yearning is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and seeking approval. Anybody feel that before? Just tried to fit in a little bit, just tried to seek approval. Since these are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but they're often barriers to it. Have you ever met someone that just tried too hard? Man, they tried to dress the part and they tried to dress 25, but they were 60. Like, dude, that's just not working for you. <laughs> You're just trying too hard. It actually becomes a barrier trying to fit in because you are not yourself. You're just beginning to identify. So, so let me ask this question. Where do you belong? If you had to just identify it and just thought about it, like where do you belong? The people, the places, where do you belong? And second of all, what does that tell you about you? Right? It's good to evaluate that. The people you belong to, the places you go, where you hang out, the norm, your normal haunts. Like, what is it? What does that tell you about you? Is that the kind of life you want to be living? Is that the destination you want for your life? So Paul just talks out. He just begins this passage just talking about how we didn't belong, but he's going to turn the wall. Turn, he turns the corner <clears throat> in verse 13. He says this. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like that's pretty good, right? You were once far off, specifically Gentiles, but anybody who's without Christ, now what? You're brought near because of the blood of Jesus. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. Now, remember, massive hostility here. Now he's saying he's, that God that Christ, in Christ has made us one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far, meaning Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, meaning Jews. For through him, we both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in the spirit to the Father. So we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. And I'll get to that part in just a second. So you see that in the blood of Christ, that all of a sudden... Two people who were hostile to each other. These groups have been brought together. Now, when Paul talks about this dividing wall, he's talking about a physical wall. So we have a picture of the temple. Just to unpack this real quick. You'll notice that this place kind of over to the top right-ish, um, right above the symbol right there, says the holy place. That's where God showed up. 
Only special people got to go there. The high priest uh, got to go there on rotation once a year, and you had to be ritually clean. There were a lot of rules that went into that. It was just special people that originally got to go into that. Remember, this was before Jesus. And then you had these other courts and areas where people could go, and you have other altars. You had, but then you'll notice on the outside, on the top left, it says Court of Gentiles. You see that? this court of Gentiles, they had to stay on the outside. And notice this, there's a little bit of a wall there. It looks like a little bit of a retaining wall. And it's on both sides of the temple that prevented Gentiles from actually going up into the temple. So this is the physical wall of hostility. It's a physical wall that separated Gentiles from being able to go in and to worship God in the temple. Now, not only that, there was a sign that was hung on this wall and there's, a, there's a, one that was found and it says, if you go past this wall, you will die. That's what it says. Like feels a little stronger than beware of dog that your neighbor put up on the fence. And so you have this dividing wall of hostility Paul refers to, and he says it's been broken down. Now, now in the Bible, a lot of times physical realities actually uh, mirror spiritual realities, right? So this dividing wall, it's a physical reality, but the spiritual reality that it mirrors, if there's this wall that's been put between us and God, and the reason it's been put up is because of sin. It's because of our sin, because we decided we wanted to create our own identity and do our own thing without God. So this wall has been erected between us and God. And so Paul says that wall has been broken down. See, walls keep people from belonging. Walls keep people from from belonging. So Paul says it has been broken down by what? The blood of Christ. So Christ was crucified so that we could get in. His blood was shed so that we could have access to God so that we would belong. Now it feels a little unsophisticated, doesn't it? It feels like, ah, oh, wasn't there a better way? Like really is that it? No, no, the cross actually is central to the story. The cross actually is what matters. The cross is where we find access to God because there's a, a price that had to be paid for sin because God is just and holy and Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it all as the great hymn would say. There's this blood covenant, blood covenant. I don't know if any of you guys, maybe when you were kids, did you ever, did you ever have this thing called blood brothers or blood sisters? Anybody ever do that? Yeah, right? Thank goodness because nobody in the other two services did that. Actually, they just didn't want to admit it in public. Um, but it was, it was kind of silly. But basically what would happen is you may prick your finger or pretend to prick your finger or something. Now remember, this was in the 70s before everything had broke out and you know what I'm talking about. And so and maybe you would hold that together you know, where both of you did that and it would give you this special blood relationship, right? We all know there's something about blood that speaks. You sign an oath of blood. And here's the deal. Jesus' blood is our membership ticket into the kingdom of God, right? It's, it's our membership ticket. It means something. And it, here's the one thing that we need to understand. Like he did it all. Like he did it all. Like we don't have to earn anything. We don't have to, we don't have to be successful at anything. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to repay anything, right? He, right? he did it all. We have trouble. We have trouble receiving gifts from people because why? We want to reciprocate. And we also like to work really hard to earn the things that we've been given. That was a great lesson our parents taught us, wasn't it? You should earn it. You should work hard. But the truth is, Jesus did all the work for us. And sometimes it's really hard for us to be able to reciprocate, to not want to reciprocate that. There's a passage over in um, Isaiah chapter 55. <clears throat> it says this in verse 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly parole. That's not what it says, is it? It says pardon. Massive difference. Like if you're on parole, any little mistake will get you thrown back in jail. And so many times we live like we're on parole and not pardoned. Looking over our shoulder and thinking God's going to get us. He's looking for us to do something bad. And immediately when that happens, we're going to get thrown in trouble. But this says that we've been completely pardoned. Our record has been expunged. We have voting rights. Like there's nothing in our past that has this ability to come back and haunt us anymore. We have been pardoned, not paroled, is what Isaiah says to us. And we just act like we're on parole. How many, have you guys heard of the the prodigal son, story of the prodigal son? Just it goes like this. Younger son comes to his dad. Dad's rich. Says, I want my inheritance. So he gives him his inheritance and he takes off with it. Says he goes, spends it all on alcohol and drugs, prostitutes, parties, just all of it. Wastes it all. Decides to come back home. And here's why. He, He starts thinking to himself. He's like, even the slaves at my dad's house, they eat better than I'm eating right now. They have a better life than I have right now. So I'll go back and at least I could be a slave. And what does the dad do? He's like, you're not a slave, you're a son. He didn't just take him in as a slave. And sometimes we can have a slave mentality, but what Paul is saying is that, listen, you have full rights, you belong because of what? The blood of Christ. And that blood brings peace. You know, verse 14, we see it mentioned the first time. It says, he is our peace. And that word's used four times in these few verses, which if something's used four times in a few verses, it's really primary and important to what is being said in that particular passage. So he is our peace. Now in the Bible, peace doesn't necessarily mean absence of conflict, but it means whole. Okay. It means put back together is what peace means in the Bible. Also, if you think about this, uh, anxiety and worry means to be pulled apart. Anybody feel that these days? You just begin to feel pulled apart. And so peace in the Bible means, first of all, it's just that we have peace with God. Man, we have this wholeness because we have this peace with God, that God is the one who's taking over. God is the one who's curing our anxiety. You know, there's a passage that Paul writes. He's like, in everything through supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to have this kind of peace. But eventually that kind of spills over into our relationships. So we have peace with God. We have peace in our soul because God has given us peace. But we also have peace with other people. You know, I I think a lot of times the reason why we don't have peace with other people is because we don't have peace with God. If you ever met anybody and they're just frustrated and angry and full of conflict and you just think to yourself, you are a miserable person because you know they're not just mad at the situation. There's something else going on. And they don't have peace with God. And we, we create enemies <clears throat> who aren't really our enemies. You know, like your neighbor, not your enemy. I know they called the HOA on you for not doing your, getting your pine straw upgraded this spring. But they're not your enemy. Man, your spouse, not your enemy. Man, your, your kids, not your enemy. Right? We have an enemy. And it's, his name is Satan. But when we have peace with God, man, enemies tend to tend to diminish because we just walk with this settled confidence in life. 
Now, I think the greatest opportunity, the greatest time we'll need peace probably is when we approach what the Bible calls the final enemy, and that's death. And when we approach death, we're going to need peace. Now, now, we can have peace because we know that Jesus conquered death, number one. And number two, he said he would transfer to us the same resurrection power. So we can know that even as we face death, man, our last breath here is our first breath in eternity. And as we begin to understand more about death, um, one, of the, one of the things that um, experts will say is that like when you can talk about it on a normal basis, it actually contributes to your, to your emotional health rather than just ignoring it because it's a reality and it's going to happen to all of us in the room. Hopefully not today, right? But it's going to happen and it definitely is worthy of tears and mourning, but we would grieve differently if we understood the peace that we can have by following Jesus. So he says it brings peace. And then, then, he, then he, verse 19, he just talks about this new community that we belong to. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, <clears throat> but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see in verse 22, it's like this dwelling place that we're being built into. But he starts out by calling us citizens. Now, in the Roman world, being a citizen, excuse me, extremely valuable. People would pay a lot of money to be a Roman citizen. Why? It was the path to power. Right? To, to be a Roman citizen, the rights that you got, it was a pathway to power. So as Paul's writing this, they had a little bit different understanding of citizenship than maybe most of us do. You know, if we were born in the United States or to parents who were uh, United States citizens, we're automatically United States citizens. So to have a United States passport can mean something in, specific, in, a, in a, most countries, honestly, not, maybe not quite all of them, but in most countries. And so Paul knew something about citizenship and how important it was. And so when he says that we are citizens, meaning citizens of the kingdom of God, he's saying you have full rights as a citizen. Man, you're not second class. You are valued. You're not, a, you're, you're, you're not an outcast. And you have full rights. And then he uses this word, saint. Not the New Orleans Saints. Somebody asked me about that earlier. Um, thank goodness, huh? Any Falcons fans in here? Let's go. Come on. Yeah. Saints, what in the world? Stop. Um, my dad used to say that any team that's called Saints will never win anything because the Lord won't let them. And, um, but they did. And so he was already gone by the time that happened. But, um, so, but Saints, I think if you grew up, anybody grew up in a Catholic background? Probably a lot. Yep. Yeah, and so you have a, uh, Catholics have kind of a view of saint. They uh, declare saint people to be saints. They confer sainthood on people. A lot of requirements to go into that. So you think of people like St. Augustine or John Paul or um, St. Christopher, a lot of saints. And, and that's a, a more of a, a man-made definition of saint. I'm not saying they're not great people. I'm just saying that's not exactly what the Bible is talking about. So in the Bible, a saint just means someone who's set apart for a special purpose. Okay, a saint is someone who is set apart for a special purpose. So Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus and calling them saints. Now, let me ask you, how many books have you read by the saints of Ephesus? How many of the saints in Ephesus have you even heard of besides Paul? Like how many saints have you listened to podcasts of? 
Like, like saints aren't, aren't necessarily just someone who is famous, but it is everyday ordinary people who commit their lives to being set apart for the purposes that God has called them to be set apart for. Right? That, that's what a saint is. So he calls them saints. And then he says this, members of the household. Now, this is just a family term. If you're members of the house, you're a member of the family. Like you are in. You're a part of the family. There's some distinguishing characteristics. You know, it could be your last name, right? It could be uh, the size of your forehead, you know? There's some distinguishing characteristics. It could be just some common values that you have. And so when Paul uses this word, members of the household, what Paul is describing is the church. It is the church. This particular passage is one of the most fundamental in our understanding of the church. Some, some people, some scholars say it's actually primary in our understanding of the church as a family. See, church is not a place you attend. It's a people you belong to. So if you think about we didn't belong, then we do belong, and the importance of belonging in the church is where we belong. It is fundamentally the most important place of belonging. That's the church. It's fundamental to our identity. It's not just something that we do on Sundays. And I think what's happened, especially in the Western church, and, and probably even Southeast, but probably everywhere, um, is that churches become, Sundays become a, a worship event that happens. Man, worship around here is pretty amazing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but there's a deeper meaning here, and Paul uses the word family. In, in another place, he uses it's the bride of Christ. In one place, he says it's the body of Christ. So it is actually, for people who follow Christ, it's fundamental to our identity. Fundamental. Now, you, you've heard people say this as well as I have. It's like, man, I don't need a church, right? I got my Bible. I got a handful of friends. I can watch you know, content on television. And that would be okay except for the Bible. And the Bible says, and the Bible is clear that there's something fundamental to who we are that we literally and spiritually miss out on part of our identity when we are not connected to God's people, right? It's part of our identity, like when I say identity, crucial to deep down who we are and how we live is crucial to that. Man, it is so fundamental to our identity that it should factor into our decisions. You know, when we think about maybe taking a new job or uh, what college we're going to go to, man, we should take into consideration where we're going to find this community, this family that's going to help us because it's going to grow our identity, Paul is saying. Then he says this. It says it's built on the apostles, the prophets, with its cornerstone being Jesus. So the apostles were 12 guys that Jesus had called to help carry the mission forward, that he had given them marching orders to go into all the world. He had given them the message. They had lived with him. And so their writings are what we have now. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were the four gospels. Now the entire Bible points to Jesus those specific books of the Bible, parts of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're biographies of Jesus. And so you had Matthew, who was an apostle. You had Mark, who was a friend of Peter's, who was an apostle. You have Luke, who hung out with the apostles, who also wrote the book of Acts. And you have John, who was the apostle that Jesus loved. He wrote John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, very original. And then he wrote Revelation. And, so, and then when he refers to the prophets, this is the writings of the prophets, so the Bible is really important in our understanding of church. I think the, the place we need to be really careful of, the Bible is a great gift. We have to agree to that. 
Like if God would give us his words to point us to salvation, to give us life, to show us about eternity, to give us purpose, to really give us our identity, it is a great gift. But we don't worship the Bible, we worship Jesus. Amen, somebody? Right, that's who we worship. He is the cornerstone, uh, Paul points out in this particular passage, that everything else is built on. And then Paul uses this phrase, he says, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Grows into a holy temple to the Lord. Now, the temple was everything to the Jewish community. It's where they met God. It's their, their holy days, their holidays were centered around the temple. And so Paul's making this transition from the temple to the church. And so number one, the temple, i.e. the church, is sacred. And it's set apart. There's something that happens when we gather together you know, if maybe during one of those songs that maybe one of them kind of got you in the feels a little bit, felt a little emotion, maybe bubble up a little bit, man, that, that's, that's the Lord. And there's something about being around God's people, just being encouraged, worshiping with them, you know, just um, exchanging kind of what God's doing in your life. There's something about it that's sacred and set apart. And, and because it's sacred, man, it should be valuable to us. The second thing is just central. The temple was central to everything. And, you know, the, the church used to be central in our communities and made our communities better. It made our country better, made our culture better. And the reason why church has ceased to be central in our communities is because it ceased to be central for our families. And so we need, I'm not saying like legalistic, you got to be here every time the doors open. Some of you guys maybe grew up that way, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, anybody in that, in that? Yep. Like it shouldn't be legalistic. But we should understand that God has given us a mission. He's given us a community where we find our identity, and that is found in the church. And it's found in the church. Now, now everyone in the church is valued. This is what I love about the church. Man, everyone's valued. All people are valued. No, no matter what your background, no matter your baggage, man, everybody is valued in the church. There's an author named David Kim, and he said this, God's plan for his church is strategic, of course, but part of his strategy is offering hurting, tired, worn out, needy sinners like you and me a place to belong, a place to identify, a place to encounter the profound, transformative, healing, restoring grace of Jesus together. And that's, that's the church, where people can find a home, where people can find a place it, people can find some truth, where people can be challenged to live the life God's called them to live, where people can find their identity and live that out, their God-given identity. I mean, this, that's the power. I mean, that's the power of the church. You know, in that great song by the great theologian, Eric Church, he comes, he circles back around to that first verse at the very end, but he says it a little differently. He says, hey there, weird kid in your high top shoes, sitting in the back of the class, I was just like you, always left out, never fit in, owning that path you're walking in, Mr. Misunderstood. But at the end of the song, there's this echo that says this, I understand. Mr. Misunderstood, I understand. And that is a, honestly a description of what we see in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. It says that we don't have a high priest who can't empathize with our weaknesses, who doesn't understand us. And I really believe that one of the great gifts of the gospel 
is that when we step into eternity, man, we will be fully understood as we will fully understand. And that God, the many times that we get misunderstood and we don't, people don't get us, we feel like, man, God does. And Jesus does. You know, Isaiah 55 said this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Like that moment's now. Who can say if you have this afternoon? Who can say if you got tomorrow? But right now, seek the Lord while he may be found. You know, for you, it may be you just kind of skirted around the edges of following Jesus. It's time to just mark the moment today. Hey, for some of you, you've been letting some words, maybe a name or some other words that you've been called, that you called yourself, you just let them stay alive in your heart by repeating them. Man, today's the day to, to, to get rid of those. Why? Because the blood of Christ erases those. You haven't been paroled. You have been pardoned. Let's pray together.